0: This is a Triple J podcast. (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Do you reckon the richest corporations in the country should hand over some of their massive profits to solve the housing crisis? Because Australia's construction union thinks they should. They've launched this big campaign this week, and over the next few months, they're going to be pushing the federal government to back it. So will the government support this? And would the plan even work? Well, later we're going to be speaking with the man who's leading the charge with this. I'm keen to hear what you reckon of this super profits tax idea. So we'll get some of your thoughts as well. First, though, on the podcast, we're talking climate, holidays, anxiety, It seems like a strange mix, but weirdly it's all related. Hack.
1: We certainly don't want people ending up in a really, really bad mental state, but telling people that things will be fine is not going to help them.
2: On Triple Jack.
0: Hey, I don't know what your social feeds are like at the moment, but mine are rammed with pics of friends living it up in Europe. It's the typical stuff you always see at this time of year. Cocktails, boat rides, beach time. At the same time, though, there's also this full-on reporting of a climate emergency in Europe. Extreme heat waves, fires in places like Italy, Greece, Northern Africa, heat records being smashed. It's a lot. It's overwhelming, right? If all of this is stressing you out, all of the reporting on the climate, you're not alone. It's what's called climate anxiety. Joe Lauder explains.
3: Research shows the entire planet is warming at an accelerated pace. Experts say
1: this month is on track to become the hottest month since records started.
2: There's a lot of really worrying climate news around at the moment about... Heat waves in Europe and Northern Africa, in the Middle East and the US. We begin at this hour in Europe with the heat wave that is tearing across the south of the continent. Fires in Greece.
4: Residents of the Greek island of Rhodes say there's widespread devastation caused by wildfires. What's called a
2: five sigma Antarctic ice event. This winter, the sea ice is not recovering as it usually does. It's stressful. I've been reading a lot about these events and how climate change is making them more intense, but also more regular as we go forward because we're still continuing to put pollution into the atmosphere. If you're like me, this stuff can make you feel angry and frustrated and powerless.
3: It's quite frustrating, if anything else, because everyone's saying, you know, no new coal, no new gas. We just, our air can't take any more of it, our ecosystems, our people can't. um, And to see them constantly being approved and everything and that further fueling these climate disasters is just incredibly frustrating.
2: Farsha Yudgman is a climate justice advocate and she got a start in the climate movement by being an organiser of the School Strikes for Climate. She also works as a paralegal with a firm that handles climate cases and has started a climate justice group that focuses on the global south. What I'm saying is she spends a lot of her time thinking about climate change and it brings up a lot of feelings.
3: I definitely think sometimes it is climate anxiety, but a lot of the time it just feels like all this built up this air around the fact that people aren't doing anything and we don't really have much time.
2: Dr. Blanche Burley is from the University of Wollongong, where she studies what she likes to call climate emotions, because it's more than just anxiety and worrying.
1: Like being quite angry about the situation, perhaps feeling guilty if you know that your lifestyle is part of the problem. Obviously, a lot of sadness and grief as well around, you know, species or places or people that are feeling the impacts of climate change. Uh, There's a whole lot of, I guess, really uncomfortable and distressing feelings, and so a common one is being really overwhelmed.
2: And it's more common than you think. One international study of young people from 10 different countries, including Australia, found that 75% of them think the future is frightening. 40% of them said that they were so worried that it affects their daily lives.
1: It's not just some kind of abstract worry where if you ask them about it, they'll say, oh yeah, that's a problem, but it's actually really affecting their ability to go through their daily lives.
2: But here's what I keep thinking. Isn't it totally normal and rational to be worried about climate change? Like, I feel like I'm the normal one for worrying and other people not freaking out is weird. I asked Blanche about this.
1: My first answer is that we need some people to be really worried about climate change, but those people should be our elected leaders. We have told our elected representatives time and time again that we want them to do something about climate change, but they continue to fail to do that adequately. And because they fail to worry about it and respond, they displace that emotional burden onto everyday people who don't have the capacities to implement the systemic changes that we need.
2: She also recommends talking about how you're feeling with people around you.
1: One of the most common things I hear from people about what their climate anxiety feels like is a feeling of being alone or isolated. And yet, most people have similar feelings about climate change, but they're not voiced and everyone thinks that they're... weirdo that's really upset.
2: But Blanche says it doesn't mean you have to spend all your time freaking out about this.
1: I think it's okay for people to kind of have like everyday acts of climate denial. We don't want to be sitting with climate anxiety all day, every day. It's not healthy, but we don't want to end up in a kind of full scale denial. And doomerism is a kind of denial as well. It denies the fact that we do have the capacity to implement change in the world. Vasha
2: finds that working in the climate space actually helps with her feelings of anxiety and frustration. And like Blanche, she recommends people start volunteering if they're feeling overwhelmed. All
3: the people I get to work with at work, you can really see how passionate they are about climate justice, and that gives me so much hope and makes me a little bit optimistic.
2: Vasha tries to not just focus on the negatives.
3: As small as the wins are, sometimes there are still wins in the midst of everything and that that's really important to take in.
5: You're listening to Hack on Triple J.
0: Joe Lauder reporting there. How are you feeling about all the climate emergencies at the moment? Are you stressed by all the coverage on the news? If you are, what can you do about it? Who can you talk to? Dr. Beth Hill is with a group called Psychology for a Safe Climate. She's with me now. Hey, Beth, thanks for coming on Hack. We are hearing loud and clear from our audience that many are living with this underlying sense of climate anxiety. How big of an issue do you expect this to be in the years ahead?
5: Oh, I think it's just going to continue to, to grow and grow as an issue. I mean, climate change itself, of course, is intensifying and young people have grown up with this issue. They've been learning about it their whole lives. They're living with it now. They know it's in their future. Um, and it's a really distressing reality.
0: So what does your group Psychology for a Safe Climate actually do?
5: So we offer direct support with community workshops and climate cafes to help people work through difficult emotional barriers to engaging constructively with climate change. And these can be emotions like grief, fear, anger, feelings of powerlessness. We also support people working within the climate movement to become more psychologically aware of how people respond to climate change and the kind of personal impacts of undertaking that kind of work, especially burnout. And finally, we work with mental health practitioners to help them understand the climate reality as a mental health issue that they can work on in their professional practice.
0: Do you think there are heaps of people out there who don't talk about their anxiety around climate change because maybe they don't feel like they have people around them that they can open up to about it? You know, this issue can be political as well. We've seen that over the years. It's an issue that conjures up a lot of emotions and opinions. Do you think that's Playing a role as well?
5: Absolutely. I mean, historically, it's certainly been seen as a really political and ideological issue. And if you're feeling really tender about something, you don't necessarily want to be railroaded into a political debate about it. But people also just struggle to bring it up because it touches on some of the really core challenging features of being human, you know, things like mortality but also things like guilt and shame, uh, particularly for those of us who are living in Western post-industrial cultures that have contributed so much to it. So it's really it's touching on tender spots for people um, that are a little bit socially awkward maybe to raise, particularly if you're not sure what somebody else thinks or feels about the issue.
0: So what do we do, Beth, if we are kind of living with these thoughts, if people might be struggling, do you have any tips on how you can deal with these feelings?
5: Yeah. So, I mean, my first tip is really making some space for your feelings about it. And depending on your personality, this might be something you initially want to do alone. Uh, we really encourage people to to seek out others and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but really setting some time aside to reflect about it, maybe some writing but I'm not talking about just like a one-off journaling activity. I'm really talking about a deeper personal reckoning. So asking yourself questions like, who have I been so far in my life? What do I want to be? What do I want to do in the next 20 years, given the reality of the climate crisis? What are my skills? What feels meaningful and sustainable to me? And how am I really feeling about this issue? So starting to do that movement from not just the feelings, but the who am I in relation to this. And it's often from that place that people begin to find a point of empowerment and constructive action. But it's important not to skip over the feelings. There's a classic saying you know, the an- antidote to anxiety is action. It's very well, well researched that people who are taking action on climate change, people who are surrounded by others who are engaged on this issue, tend to feel more hopeful, tend to feel less distress. But if you're just doing action and you're still having all these big feelings and you're not talking to anyone about it, it's really important to actually make space to feel what you're feeling. I'd also suggest seeking out groups that can offer support like Psychology for a Safe Climate. We offer monthly climate cafes on the fourth Sunday of every month. They're online so you can call in from anywhere.
0: Taking a break from the news, checking out of the news, is that is that an important thing to do? Is it a healthy thing to do? Because I think sometimes when we take a break from the news, then there's guilt there as well. It's like, oh, I'm not engaged. I should be engaged. I should be staying I'm uh, trying to hide from this issue.
5: Yeah.
0: Where's the balance there?
5: Yeah, look, I think for those who are in a, at a point of climate distress, I'd say the balance probably is to take that break you're probably one of those who's really informed and really engaged. And I know for myself, I've been working on this issue for about 15 years and I engage with the news selectively and deliberately. I do want to know what's happening. I do want to know the latest science, but I don't necessarily want to read about that every single day of the week. So I will quite consciously say, no, you know what, today, I'm not going to read that article. I'm going to save it for next week or I'm going to save it for a time when I'm choosing to deliberately engage rather than just casually. And as you know, you can be scrolling on your phone. Suddenly something pops up. Giving yourself permission to say, today I'm just going to skip over that. I don't need to take that in again today. I'm going to go call a friend and think about what I can actually do about this issue rather than just reading more and more kind of doom scrolling.
0: I guess the other thing is not everyone will be able to afford support pay for mental health treatment?
5: Yeah, look, you know, I think one-on-one support for some people is really necessary. It's really appropriate. It's useful. But for a lot of people, it is a huge barrier financially. And we actually think related to this issue, what we need are more and more community members who are skilled and willing to hold these difficult conversations, to make space for even grief rituals and processes like that collectively within their friends groups, within their communities, so that this work is happening at the collective and community level and not just one-on-one with a clinician in a room.
0: Dr Beth Hill from Psychology for a Safe Climate, thank you very much for joining us on Hack.
5: My pleasure, thank you. Hack
0: on Triple J. And we have a lot of messages coming through on this one. People who it's resonating with. Someone says, I don't have climate anxiety, though I have inaction frustration. Another person says, I hate to say this, but I actually feel desensitised by all the climate coverage now. I see it so much that I don't even feel anything anymore. Another person says, I stopped watching following listening to the news about five or seven years ago and it's really helped if i need to hear something i'll hear it from people but i don't need that much bad news in my life on a daily basis lots of opinions on that one Hey, we are going to speak a bit more about climate for a couple of minutes, so if you do need to tune out, fair enough, I fully understand, I get it, but this is an interesting one because earlier I was talking about that weird dissonance that we're seeing on our social feeds, friends, family, living it up in Europe, holidaying for the summer there, but also the reporting of a climate emergency in Europe with heat waves and fires, and we're being told to expect more of those conditions in the coming years. So what does that mean for tourism in the countries? Like, how is that going to work in the years ahead? Susanna Becken is a Professor of Sustainable Tourism at Griffith University, and she's been looking into this. She's with us now. Hey, Susanna, thanks for coming on, Hack.
4: Yeah, hi, thanks for having me.
0: Is the classic European summer trip going to be a thing of the past in the years ahead, do you think?
4: Well, it's it's certainly been starting to ramp up like that in the last year. So that it just gets hotter and hotter in the Mediterranean, and, and we see that in other parts of the world as well, if you think North America going to Mexico or, or southern states. So it's getting hotter and hotter. And, and with that comes obviously extremely unpleasant mm-hmm. temperatures, um, but also the risk of fire, as we've seen. So it, it, people start to book more at shoulder seasons, um, you know, or even choose different types of holidays. So so that's starting to happen anyway. But with those dramatic images that we see um, and people also many being caught up in this, um, that that will start to shift opinions a little bit of, of where we go on holiday.
0: Yeah. So we're already seeing the changes. You're saying you're always looking at tourism and these countries, these cities that rely on tourism are already preparing for what could change in the years to come.
4: That's right. And and that's this sort of adaptation that we talk about. And in fact, from a research point of view, we've been looking at this for twenty years or so. Just that then we thought, oh, this is end of the century, you know, that we said, oh you now hotels need air conditioning. Now that's obviously not a great thing because you need more energy. Um we talked about um people maybe going in spring or autumn, um d- moving away from this beach holiday. Um the destinations having to have maybe contingency plans in place. Um, what happens in a fire? And we've seen it um 2019, of course, in Victoria, in Australia, when the, the fires were there and, and um, people had to be evacuated from the beach. And so, so destinations have to think a little bit more about, okay, what if, and also the visitors, where am I actually going and could I get caught up in something? Um, and so, so that comes on top of the how. I mean, the, the other thing that's happening, of course, is is that we get a little bit more worried about our carbon footprint. And so, I can see that um, the whole way we travel maybe might might change a little bit in the near future. Yeah, I was going to
0: ask, do you think travelers have a bit more guilt around these things as well about climate change and traveling? Obviously, not wanting to contribute to emissions, feeling uh, guilty about that, but also about having a good time, like you know. A lot of people over there are enjoying europe while something pretty <laughs> severe is unfolding
4: yeah i i mean i i do hope that people actually do enjoy their holiday and and i've been listening in um just the, the program um before i came on um about you know maybe sometimes switching off and and just looking after yourself and traditionally that's what the holiday time is there for that people recharge their batteries they they get away from it um they especially after the pandemic, we find that people connect a little bit more with nature. And that is absolutely crucial, in my view, also to just overcome some of this anxiety. The thing is that in the last sort of decade, we became used to, to tourism that's just so, you know, faster, further, is almost removed from this purpose. So I'd say, I mean, traveling could be close to home, could be like a really low carbon holiday, but taking that time out is super important. So I wouldn't feel guilty about that. Um, of course, if we fly long haul, I mean, that is a problem. And, and you know, that's where the whole flight chain comes from. So I think we, we just have to increasingly think quite hard. Is this necessary or is it maybe a once in a lifetime trip? And otherwise I might holiday, you know, Australia has amazing places where, where we can maybe just get that rest that we need.
0: Definitely interesting to hear that those things are starting to be noticed already. And I I especially think this year it's so dramatic in front of us that people Mm. are thinking about it. Someone on our text line says, my partner and I are supposed to be in Italy and Greece this time next year. We're now actually talking about if it's going to happen or not. So people (laughs) are having it front of mind. Professor Susanna Beckham from Griffith University, very much appreciate you coming on Hack. You're welcome. Hack. That's the kind of brave policy announcement we've been waiting for. On Triple J. Hey, what's the solution to Australia's housing crisis? Honestly, if you know, please message in. I'm sure a lot of people would love to know. 0439757555. But honestly, politicians have all kinds of ideas. You hear the different plans, whether it's from the Greens, whether it's from the government, the Coalition. The CFMEU, the Construction Union is launching a campaign this week, and it has a plan. It's calling for a super profits tax, basically getting the richest corporations in the country to cough up to raise almost $30 billion a year and to use that money to build tens of thousands of new homes, homes that are desperately needed. Could this actually happen? What do you think of it? Message in, 5. Already got messages coming through on this one. Someone says, yes, large companies should be taxed to help the housing crisis and other things. Another person says, too many companies boasting about record profits while simultaneously hiking their prices. Well, let's get into it a bit more. Zach Smith is the CFMEU's National Secretary. He's with us now. G'day, Zach. Thanks so much for coming on Hack. Good afternoon. You've outlined this massive plan to basically claw back money from rich companies to help build houses to alleviate the housing crisis in Australia. Can you explain in pretty simple terms how this would work?
6: Well, I think it's important to start with the problem before we talk about the solution. And the problem we're facing as a country is we have a housing crisis. And that's the only way you can describe it is as a crisis. We are commissioned economic research by Oxford Economics Australia and what they found is that the current gap, the current deficit in housing in this country is 750,000 homes. And that is only going to increase to 950,000 homes in the next 18 years out to 2041. Now, that's even after you factor in all the billions of dollars of commitments that have been made by state and territory governments. And you also factor in the $10 billion that federal government's proposing to spend through the Housing Australia Future Fund. And the cost of building those houses is half a trillion dollars. $500 billion is needed to be spent. Really, when you think about it, an economy should serve the society. So then we come to the solution. And I suppose the question is, how do you build uh, the housing that we need? How do you meet this shortfall of investment of half a trillion dollars um, whilst doing the minimal amount of harm to the majority of Australians? And the answer to us was clear, a super profits tax. There does exist extraordinary pockets of wealth in a very small, very elite cabal of companies here in Australia in their in their balance sheets. Think about the big banks who have just recorded a $17.1 billion profit. We're talking about the uh, supermarkets who greedily increased their profit margins during the COVID pandemic while the rest of us were doing it tough. We're talking about Qantas, we're talking about the mining companies obviously as well. And so what our research found was that an economy-wide permanent super profits tax could generate the money needed to build the housing that we need as a society. Is there any idea in this
0: modelling how many corporations, businesses would be impacted by this?
6: Yes, what the modelling found uh, is that point only 0.3% of businesses would be impacted. And there's a few reasons for that. Firstly, you have to be making super profits. So most businesses do not make super profits. But we do have a small, like I say, a small elite cohort of companies that are. And also the other thing is we said... Uh, we, We only want to target businesses that have a turnover of $100 million or more. So we're not after the small to medium businesses. We're not also after startups. We're not trying to cruel innovation or entrepreneurialism in Australia. So, 99.7% of Australian businesses wouldn't have a change to their taxation arrangements.
0: I mean, the argument against this that you would hear from, I imagine, those big companies is that it'll discourage investment in Australia, that nobody will want to do business here because of a tax like
6: this. How do you respond to that? Well, it's just not true. Uh, and, and we, you know, we need to push back pretty heavily on that argument. I mean, business will say, and the business lobby will say, any time there's any new cost, any new tax arrangement, that it'll drive investment away from our shores. It's the boy that cried wolf argument. And they cried wolf about the petroleum resources rent tax, the PWRT. Treasury has just found that the level of investment that we have seen since those changes were made around the PWRT clearly investment is increasing, and that clearly it hasn't had any impact on investment. And the PRRT is a economic rent tax similar to the one we're proposing. Similarly, the IMF, you know, global experts on such matters, have said that taxes of this nature don't discourage investment, and they're actually quite fond of taxation in this way because what you're doing is you're targeting super profits.
0: So if they work so well, why don't we see more of
6: these super profit taxes in the world? Well, I think there's a, there's a few reasons. Firstly, there's always been a bit of debate around what is you know measuring economic profits um, in this sense, and so you know we have confidence in the public service in our county firms to do that. The other thing too is it's a, it's a question of political will and courage, and you know your listeners will. Recall um, that the Rudd government uh, a number of years ago now attempted to well they they had a big debate about the introduction of a mining resources rent tax, which again is a you know tax on economic rents. Uh, and there was, you know, some public backlash to that. I mean, it was very
0: it was very severe backlash in the sense that, you know, for a lot of our listeners probably don't remember, actually. But to, to be clear, back when Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard were in power, they were pushing, you know, the resource super profit tax, the minerals resource rent tax. This war broke out between mining companies, the government. It was toxic. There were ads on both sides in newspapers, on the radio, on TV. It didn't end well for Labor. I'm just wondering... Why would a Labor government
6: support this when it didn't turn out so well in the past? Um, it's a really good question. I think it's one that you know I welcome the opportunity to sort of address. So they can't afford not to act in some way, in my opinion, right? We, we, we are, and I talk to workers all over this country, right, and there is a growing sense of frustration, um, of concern about the housing situation in this country. Like, when I get around the country and talk to workers and just ordinary Australians, like, housing is a number one issue, interlinked with cost of living, and they are and they are obviously interlinked for, for very obvious reasons. We can't keep saying to people, you have to swallow all the hard medicine of economic recovery. You have to keep seeing your interest rates increase month on month on month. You can't keep saying to young people, you know, I'm, I'm 35 myself, but, you know, people even, you know, you know, people younger than myself looking to get in the housing market, but you're going to be frozen out. You can't keep saying to people that, you know, it's just status quo that rents are costing 50% of people's wages or more in some cases. Then whilst at the same time saying the extraordinary super profits that have been made, and bearing in mind those profits are made because of market inefficiency, because you have monopolies and duopolies operating in some of these sectors and they're able to hike the prices up without getting any consumer backlash, that those super profits are out of of bounds. You can't touch them. Yes, you you say, well, you know, they're not going to want to touch a fight with the miners, but the political reality is uh, at some point we are going to be in a situation in this country where there's going to be anger, disharmony. You know, people are going to be rightfully looking at the government and saying, well, what have you done about it? You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave
0: Marchese. I'm speaking with Zach Smith from the construction union, the CFMEU, about this campaign they've launched to tax the richest companies in Australia to pay for more homes to deal with the housing crisis. Zach, have you spoken with the government about this? Like, are they on board? Have they said anything to you that would indicate that, yeah, maybe they would back this?
6: Yeah, look, we've had discussions, we have regular discussions with government at different levels about housing. You know, I'll let them speak for themselves in their own position. I mean, um, they haven't come out and said they're supporting it. No, they're not saying
0: too much at this
6: point. They're not saying too much at this moment. But, you know, we know that this is a long-term campaign and we're in it for the long haul. You don't get big economy-wide changes like this in just five minutes. I get that. And this campaign isn't a shot in the dark. We are going to run this campaign for as long as it takes. We want to force a serious conversation in this country about the way we do economics. We're being told relentlessly since at least the 1980s the government doesn't have a role to play. They should get out of the way let the free market, let the invisible hand take over, look at that's left us. And we're, we're saying, no, the state does have a role. But are you ready for things to get ugly? Because as you said, it might only
0: affect 0.3% of businesses in Australia, but they're pretty vocal. They've got um, lots of advertising at their disposal, and we've seen that work in the past. Are you ready for that?
6: I am ready for that. Uh, absolutely, I'm ready for that. People will say a lot of things about my union, the CFMU, but we've never shied away from a fight. No one can ever accuse us of uh, not being up for the fight. Uh, they're going to cry wolf. They're going to say that this will result in economic disaster. But let's just—you just, just got to return it back to the facts. This is a clear blueprint for a better society and a society where we can house all Australians and actually the government playing a serious role, part of a broader safety net um, where they guarantee that Australians have a right to housing.
0: Well, hey, it's definitely got people talking and I'm looking forward to hearing more from especially politicians hear what the government has to say about this in the weeks ahead. Zach Smith from the CFMEU, thank you very much for coming on Hark. Thank you very much. And the messages on the text line to this, someone says it's short-sighted solution to target the mega rich. But someone else, Jordan in Canberra, says this is completely sensible and whether or not it's spent on housing, these companies shouldn't be able to rip enormous profits out of the community without paying something back. Someone else, Matthew in Brisbane, unions want to take money from our super. No, thanks. Large companies are owned by shareholders. Taxing the profits reduces the dividends and share prices. The largest shareholders are super funds somebody else. We need to stop allowing houses to be an investment. Large companies also shouldn't be allowed to buy houses, individual owners only. And another person, wouldn't we be better placed getting existing multinationals in Australia to actually pay tax here by closing tax loopholes? Lots of opinions there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.
4: Hack
2: on Triple Jack.